Hey, this is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And before we start the show, we'd like to bring your attention to some cool conferences happening around the world. Specifically, NDC Sydney, happening August 14th through the 18th in Sydney, Australia. Now, I personally can't make it to Sydney this year, but you're going, right, Richard? Absolutely, I'm going, you know, because Sydney. Uh, yeah, Awesome. I wish I could go. So go to NDCSydney.com and register now. Save some money and register before April 30th for early bird pricing. And for more great NDC conferences, go to NDCconferences.com. Right. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Coming to you from the Department of Almost Dead Dogs. <laughs> yeah, you know he's uh, he came, Zach just came back from the vet. The vet said is the fittest Karen he's ever seen for a senior citizen. Like the dog is like seventy five years old, right? But he's like Jack Lalanne. He still goes after bears and otters. Oh, he's and- completely fearless. And yeah. and that the good news is he doesn't see that well anymore. So he's <laughs> missing more stuff. I, I watched a, a squirrel totally deke him out. Just mm. only moved when he wasn't looking, got up on a tree and held still. He walked right by. The, he just missed it completely. You know, if he doesn't see well, there are places in America where they'd say, he don't look so good. <laughs> yes, he really don't. <laughs> but yeah, still fit and trim. He lives on fish. And uh, yeah, mm. they, I really don't want any more bear encounters with him. He's old enough. The otter was bad enough. Yeah. Now tell everybody about the otter encounter. That just happened today, right? Uh, that happened on the last weekend. Oh, so okay. we were up on, on the coast property and, and j- just cause they're river otters doesn't mean they don't go in the ocean. Nobody told the river otter they can't go in the ocean. And the river otters are, they're just big weasels, right? Yeah. Everybody likes them. They're cute and they're, they're cuddly cute. with each other, but a stink. Like you've never smelled anything quite so nasty. Mm. They poop everywhere. They're super destructive and they're after the fish in our pond. Yeah. And so, uh, I'm with the dog. We're doing some stuff in the yard. I hear a splash in the pond. Dog runs over the pond. I walk over the pond just as the otter comes up right in front of the dog. Ah. And I don't know who was more freaked out, but the otter went back down underwater in a big hurry. And you can see the dog ready to jump in the pond. And I'm like, that's a 12. He's 12. He's too old to be wrestling otters. He's five. I probably would let him go. Right. Do it. No problem. Right. Chicks dig scars. Go for it. But, uh, no, he, uh, and I, but my concern is he's going to go in, he's going to get in trouble. Otters are good at drowning dogs. Oh. And, uh, I'm going to have to go into the pond after him. And I really didn't want to go in the pond. So I grabbed the dog and brought him inside. Wow. And the otter left the pond shortly after that because I saw, I saw him in the ocean in front of the beach house. Annoyed. Like, yeah. what's up with the dog? <laughs> so anyway, he hopefully he won't be back. Keep that dog out of my pond. Exactly. Well, I still have a couple of goldfish left, uh, koi, and uh, I put a new outdoor nest camera on the pond with motion sensing. So we'll see if he comes back. Now, if you can hook up a laser zapper, now you got something. Well, I'm think I I've read that the river otters do like freshwater swimming, and mm. it's probably the biggest body of f- freshwater in the immediate area. Mm. So I'm tempted. This is all overflow water to to build uh, another pond area further away where the fish do not where the fish are, oh. and maybe they and then I'll put a camera on that, call it otter cam, and you can watch yeah. otters play in my pond, kind of like a honey pot. There you go. Just to, here, play here, leave that alone. Right, you know. Well, I got something fun for Better Know Framework today. In fact, it's so much fun. I can't wait to get done with this show so I can start writing code for it. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. Hit me with that crazy music. Yes, sir. 
Alright, dude, what is this fun thing you've got? It's called Uppy. Uppy? Uppy. U P P Y dot I O. Okay, no, no point in, in creating a short link for that. <laughs> Uppy.io. And it's it's fairly new. The stability is uh, classified as experimental. Oh, nice. It's going to be a sleek modular file uploader that integrates seamlessly with any framework. Hmm. In a web browser. Well, you take file uploaders very seriously, so I can see why this would make you happy. Yeah, and this goes beyond anything that I've done. This fetches files from local disk, Google Drive, Dropbox, Instagram, remote URLs, cameras, oh. and other locations and uploads them to Final Destination. And uh, there you go. And so, see, here are some of the features that are some in development. Uh, modular, lightweight, plug-in-based architecture, easy on dependencies. You can use it from a CDN or as a module to import. A resumable file upload via the open TUS standard, T-U-S, which hmm. I don't know anything about. I'm going to go read about right now. Mm -hmm. Supports picking files from sources like webcam, Dropbox, Facebook, bypassing the user's device where possible, syncing between servers directly via the Uppy server. A very nice user interface, multiple languages, built with accessibility, free for the world forever, as in beer, pizza, and liberty. Nice. The file uploader that is great with kids. Yeah. The file uploader that also accepts cat pictures. It also accepts cat pictures. That's right. <laughs> Cute as a puppy, but also accepts cat nice. pictures. That's hilarious. Yep. Good one, dude. Nice. Yeah. I'm all for it. In fact, man, just getting files from here to there turns out to be a major pain in the butt for somebody who does it a lot. Yeah. You've dealt with this for years. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So that's it. Uppy.io. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1275, the one we did with one Robert Schieffer back in March of 2016, talking about MS Deploy, because we'd been looking at all these other deployment tools. And I remember Rob emailing, he's like, look, MS Deploy is fine. You just now have to know how to use it. I'm like, fine, make a show. And yeah. got a ton of comments on it, too. Mm. So really uh, clearly hit a button back then. And uh, one of our comments comes from Shaidong Zhang who says, great show. This show is coming right at a time that we are working on adding a deployment package generation out of our continuous integration build. I was concerned about DB project. It seems this MS deploy would be a viable approach to us. A question I have is how to implement feature toggles for a database project. Hmm. For instance, I have a new table or new column. How can I use a flag to control if it's ready to be deployed or not? And Rob actually responded a year ago <laughs> with uh, a great question. We only use feature flags in the UI middle tier layers. In general, you want to have as few flags as possible and should place them in the highest layer possible. One clarification to understand is that feature flags don't keep the changes from being deployed. All the bits are always deployed. I mean, that's sort of the point with feature flags. Deploy it all and just switch the features on and off. Right. I, th I agree that databases basically handle, have to be handled separately in these continuous deployments. Yeah. That you kind of want to roll out the changes to the database first, then put out your new uh, version, and then you probably have a second stage where you may clean up the database as well. So when you're in a feature flag state, you want to push out that. That's a, that's really one version of the app. You're just turning different features on and off, so it's one version of the database. Right. So, Shangdong, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. 
We download them with Downy. <laughs> Downy? Not Uppy? No, Downy. Yeah. That's all I got, man. Sorry. Nice. Uh, you know, it's a free show. Uh, let's bring Rob back to the show. Rob Schieffer is a solution architect for EBSCO Industries, a global company with businesses in a range of industries, including information services, publishing, and digital media, outdoor products, real estate, manufacturing and distribution, and business services, headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama. Rob focuses on improving speed of value delivery for his division and works to standardize practices across the enterprise where practical. Beyond the joys of software development, Rob enjoys family time, church, blogging, and long walks on the beach. Welcome, Rob. Welcome back. Hey, guys. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. What is not to love about Chef? Yeah, you know, I was I was watching, uh, I don't know if y'all seen it or not, but Martin Woodward has been on uh, Radio TFS and and on uh, the Visual Studio blog talking about how we're uh, they're pushing DevOps and they have a hashtag spring into DevOps. Have y'all seen that yet? Mhm. We've been putting out spring yep. into DevOps. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff. So I figured and I think part of the the blog post that Martin put out there was kind of inviting the community to participate. So uh, when I saw that, I thought, hey, you know, what better topic than talk about Chef? And I, I looked through the .NET Rocks ar- archives and I didn't see a, a topic necessarily on Chef. So I thought, hey, let's let's do it. Yeah. yeah I don't think we've ever done a Chef show. I've done a couple over on, on, on Run As Radio. Yeah, on Run As. Yeah, you seen have, those. yeah, but we have not here. And it's cool. You know, do. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Glad, glad I could uh, come on and, and kind of share some knowledge with you. Yeah, for sure. So the elevator pitch for Chef is basically turns infrastructure into code, right? It's all about that configuration uh, of your infrastructure and automating that so it's easier to apply it and apply it reliably and consistently across many machines. Yeah. Yeah. And the the feature set goes on and on. Where do we start? Yeah. So it's probably good just to talk about some of the major components of Chef. Uh, so first of all, you kind of have your workstation, which is where you, you develop the Chef cookbooks. Uh, and so, you know, f- first off, I'll mention it's kind of ridiculous. You know, Chef, it sounds like a cool name and they've kind of used that to name different components of the framework. But it's really tough to search Chef and cookbook and, and not get a bunch of, uh, yeah. you know, chefs preparing food and recipes and all those kinds of things. So that's, that's kind of fun. But, um, you know, it's it's it starts with that workstation and building those Chef cookbooks. Uh, and Chef provides what they call the Chef DK for that. <laughs> uh, it's a quick install, uh, but uh, you, you download that. It has everything you need right in the box. It's got uh, an embedded version of Ruby. It has Git uh, and all the things that you need to get started, all of the Chef components as well. So even if you don't have Ruby or any of that stuff on a Windows machine, you just download that that Chef DK and you, it's up and running and, and it's a really, really nice way to, to get going. So that gives you kind of the workstation you need. This is all open source, free? It is. Yep. Absolutely. Free like beer? Free like beer. Free like an otter. So, I, I, there's, there's a chef server component, which is kind of the other half of the equation. So, we talked about the workstation side of it, but then there's the production uh, instance where you're actually running those cookbooks. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you can take chef and run it just on a node and, and use what they what they call a chef zero client, which is just a, kind of a solo runner. It runs directly on the client. Uh, and that works. But the other component they have is called chef server. And, and that... Uh, depending on how many chef cookbooks and how many nodes you have, uh, that that is a paid product. And they have a hosted instance online or you can run it uh, on your own uh, servers as well. 
but so there, there's a that's I think how they kind of pay for you know all the folks that work at Chef and all the good work that they're doing. So there is that side as well. But what's neat about the Chef server is that's that's what gives you some of the enterprise features that you need. So you can uh, have a catalog of all the different Chef cookbooks that you want to apply to different nodes. You can register all the different nodes you want those Chef cookbooks applied to, and then you get all the cool stuff like reporting and uh, authorizations and authentication to all of that. Uh, it makes it really more of an enterprise tool. Yeah, cool. right. So usable in the free version, you can actually get deployments running, but at some point you're going to want to buy the the product. Yeah, especially if you're you're running a, you know hundreds or thousands of nodes, it, it probably makes sense to do that. Yeah. All right. So up to a certain size. Sure. But uh, you know, really, what when you start digging into it, and and really, what I came to .NET Rocks to talk about is really the workstation side of things, right? Okay. So you mm-hmm. start with that Chef DK that gives you a, a development environment to work with. Uh, I for a, as far as like a code editor, I use Visual Studio Code that works like a champ. Uh, you can get different extensions for running Ruby and getting syntax highlighting, all that that good stuff. So Visual Studio Code is a perfect tool for that. Um, but it, the kind of the components that come into the Chef DK. Uh, there's several of them. And so there's one called food critic. Uh, and so that's a static uh, analysis tool that looks at your chef cookbook code to see if it, everything is, is syntactically correct and and will, uh, eventually compile. Um, and then you've got kitchen, which is their testing framework. Uh, and what we can talk about that more in in a little bit when we talk about TDD and chef, but uh, they also have chef spec. Uh, which is their kind of their more of their unit testing framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can do unit testing with cookbooks. They have what's called Inspect, which is more of a integration type framework, uh, similar to, uh, and actually you can use Pester as a replacement if you're familiar with Pester, which is a PowerShell uh, testing tool. Or there's others like Server Spec uh, and others in the in the Ruby uh, community that you mm-hmm. can use as well. But more like integration testing, actually running. Uh, some of that that code that that test code on the the nodes themselves. Uh, then you have the cookbooks, uh, which is kind of the the high level um, package of of the chef configuration you want to apply. And within the cookbooks, you can have individual recipes that usually correspond to different components that you want to uh, apply to the node. And who is Chef for? Is it for the DevOps guy? Is it for every developer? Is it for IT only people? So it, I think it's definitely more so on the the operations and DevOps side. You know, obviously, there's a lot of value in, in uh, you know those the developer and operations folks coming together into a more of a DevOps process. Uh, and so, you know, again, part of the reason I'm here is to kind of talk about it with more of the developer crowd uh, and and show them what what it's capable of. I was just at the the PowerShell Summit two mm-hmm. weeks ago and, and gave a talk there, and so. That was an interesting crowd because it's it's really more like 80, 90 percent operations, which I just I'm not as familiar with. Right. Uh, and so it was really cool to see their perspective on it. But it's new to them as well. So uh, I think it's it's at a place now where, you know, both developers and operations folks can can benefit from it. And especially as they both move towards DevOps and uh, trying to work together on those things, it's, it's really a great tool to use. And of course, we have Chef for Azure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So Azure supported Chef for, for a, a while now. I've, I've done that a couple of times. I don't use a ton of Azure, but I've used it for a couple of side projects and, and I've used it there and it works really well. Same type of thing, though, just like you would run it on premise or anywhere else. Uh, you create those cookbooks and then when you spin up a new uh, Azure VM, uh, you can say, hey, I want to run this cookbook or set of cookbooks uh, against this new VM and it handles all the configuration for you. Right. 
so that kind of leads into though, you know, Chef on Windows. So right. uh, a little bit of history about Chef. It was originally built uh, for Ruby, uh, and it does still use Ruby as kind of the primary language. Uh, and so, you know, Windows was kind of a second class or third class citizen for a, a long while. But I, I would say 2016 was kind of the turning point. Granted, you know, I, I really only started doing this stuff, uh, you know, mid to to late 2016. But uh, seeing a lot of the blog posts and and forum posts out there, Stack Overflow posts, mm. uh, it's it's clear that Windows really hasn't always been uh, a first class citizen in that space. Yeah. Uh, but a couple of folks uh, that joined Chef, uh, Steve Morawski and Matt Rocks, have really done a, a tremendous effort in really uh, coming a long way uh, with Chef on Windows. Uh, they've been working really, really hard. Uh, and honestly, man, th- those guys were pivotal in me learning Chef and, and getting help with different things. Mm. Uh, because it's, you know, it's a different, if you're a C-sharp developer or a VB developer, it's it's very, very different. It's all in Ruby and it's all scripting. And uh, right. so it's there's a learning curve there. But I tell you what, those guys have made it really, really simple. Chef has uh, an IRC channel. Uh, they I think they just created a Slack uh, group as well. Yeah. So they're definitely trying to make it easy for uh, Windows uh, developers or developers on Windows to, to be able to use Chef, and, and they're really pumping up the tools. Uh, you know, in fact, the I, I've typically been using the 1.2 version of the Chef DK, but they just came out with version 1.3 uh, a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. And uh, you know, if you look on their website right now, at least it says that hey, we found some bugs with Windows, and so we we don't suggest you actually upgrade yet. Let us fix that and then come over. Uh, so they're still suggesting to use Chef DK version 1.2 for right now. But once that, that issue is fixed, they've got some improvements to some of the testing infrastructure. And I know specifically some of the integrations with Windows, uh, there have, have definitely been some improvements there, specifically around rebooting. Uh, uh-huh. That's always uh, kind of been a problem. And uh, Steve Morawski actually kind of fixed that issue, but it hasn't been part of the, the official Chef DK yet. And 1.3 makes it a, official. So mm. Uh, be on the lookout for that. And when they actually release that and they fix that bug, uh, definitely move up to that. Windows containers? Windows containers. So uh, I, I know I talked to to Steve about that at, at uh, the PowerShell Summit, but honestly, I don't remember if that's actually supported out of the box yet. Uh, but I, I have to think I know, uh, you know, they've, they've both been looking at Nano, both Steve and yeah. Matt, and uh, they're, they're always looking ahead at what's coming out. Uh, so I'm sure that's on their radar if it's not already. I don't see a version of Chef Server for uh, Windows 2016, so I guess they're just not there yet. Yeah, so uh, I know, I mean, in my testing, I've run my Chef cookbooks uh, against 2016 and Nano, so that that's right. all there. But if they're, okay. you, know, you know, when you start using Nano, there's all these little things that pop up that, you know, you don't expect to be problems, but they are just because it's so new. So right. I'm sure there's there are things like that. But, you know, running some basic uh, chef cookbooks, I've, I've had success in doing that. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they'll, they'll continue to make improvements there, though. And Rob, give us one second here to pay the bills. This episode of .NET Rocks is made possible in part by Windows on the Google Cloud Platform. You may not know this, but the Google Cloud Platform supports Windows Server 2008, 2012, and 2016. It also supports SQL Server versions 2012, 2014, and 2016 standard, web, and enterprise editions with high availability. You can deploy your ASP.NET Windows apps to Compute Engine or your ASP.NET Core apps to App Engine or Container Engine. 
That's Google's hosted Kubernetes environment. .NET and .NET Core libraries are there for all 200-plus Google.com and cloud services in NuGet, led by John Skeet of Stack Overflow fame. But what about Visual Studio integration? Oh, it's there. You can use Visual Studio to manage your GCP resources and deploy your existing apps. You get stack driver logging, error reporting, and tracing support for .NET and .NET Core. PowerShell commandlets for GCP, which run on Windows and Linux. And a great set of partners to bring your Windows and .NET workloads to GCP, including Capgemini, Nudesic, and Magenic. So go to gcp.netrocks.com and get your free trial today. Now, how big is a role is Ruby play here? Is, and is it that much of an obstacle? Like every time I look at Ruby code, I'm like, this just looks like code. It doesn't seem really weird. Yeah, you know, it wasn't that bad. You know, Chef, they even have a blog post on uh, learning just enough Ruby uh, to do Chef uh, oh, for those right. that, that aren't uh, experts, you know. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's for loops, it's if statements, you know, it's, it's not that yeah. bad. Um, These are pretty normal language constructs. Mm. It is, you know, it's a scripting language. So there's definitely some differences there. Some of it's, you know, actually kind of nice, but, um, you know, once you get into some of the more advanced features, uh, you can create classes and things and just understanding how inheritance works there. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit different, uh, but you know, it's not anything that I wasn't able to figure out by just looking at some, some uh, Ruby tutorials and things. So it's not too bad, but I, I wouldn't consider myself a Ruby expert at all. And I've done several chef cookbooks now and, and have been using, using it successfully. And the task of building up a deployment cookbook is a very different task from say building a web app, which is typically what you see people do with Ruby. Absolutely. So, yep. Uh, I got to think it's, it's pretty cut and pasty too. There's nothing in my deployment process is going to be that much different from somebody else's deployment process. I should be able to get examples of everything. Yeah. there And there's lots of examples on GitHub and all over the place uh, on, you know, other folks that have done a lot of the same stuff you're trying to do. So yeah, mm-hmm. I've definitely leveraged that myself. So where does PowerShell come into the equation? Yeah. So that's, that's interesting. You know, once, once you start looking at chef for windows, obviously, uh, you know, PowerShell is a big part of windows development and operations for windows. So, uh, you know, one of the things uh, right around the, in the fall of 2016, I started to look at was I, I started to look at Chef first, actually, and then uh, started looking at DSC with PowerShell as well. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of similarities there. Both are really for automating server configuration. And uh, when you start to look into it, they are very similar, actually. But what where Chef starts to stand out is on the more of the enterprise feature set, the Chef server portion of things where you can get all the reporting and access management, all those kinds of things. Well, and you just slipped an acronym in there, Rob. So we better back up a little and say, (laughs) all right, DSC. Right. So DSC is desired state configuration. Uh, So that's uh, a tool that came out with PowerShell 5, I believe. And actually. uh, Four. Okay. So four. And uh, but it does a lot of the same things. It allows you to create resources uh, where you can apply uh, configurations to infrastructure. So creating uh, a directory or creating a file, editing the registry, mm-hmm. uh, all kinds of things that you can do there. And so what was what was really interesting when you compared the resources available for Chef that were all very similar and the ones that are available for DSC, in the DSC community, you've in the PowerShell community, you've got some really more advanced DSC resources for creating a SQL Server instance and all kinds of things. So... Uh, what what became apparent was, you know, sh- Windows was somewhat of an afterthought. They they made a lot of progress in 2016, but still at the end of the day, there were some really advanced PowerShell 
DSE resources that that made things a lot easier. Uh, so what Chef did is what was really cool. They created a resource for running DSE resources. Nice. Uh, so now you can use and leverage all of those great PowerShell tools and, and DSE resources from from within your Chef cookbook. Huh. And uh, it's really neat to kind of compare the verbosity of, of some of the Chef resources for Windows versus the DSC resources for Windows. Mm. And, uh, you know, at the PowerShell Summit, a, a guy asked, you know, well, how do you know which one to use? Do you always use DSC? And, and really it just comes down to, you know, what what is easier to read and, and what's easier to develop and, and make sense? Yeah. Uh, I, there's no really right answer there. It's just compare and see which one uh, fits your needs and which one's going to be the easiest to build and maintain uh, long term. And they are invocable from each other. So it's not a bit more, more relevantly. Chef can invoke a, an, an execution of PowerShell. So PowerShell will call the DSC to actually set resources on a given server. That's right. Yep. So it's just uh, how you actually get your machine configured into the state you want it to be in and be sure it's there. I mean, mm-hmm. I've always liked the idea as a guy who's done lots of, of, you know, multiple web servers. The, your biggest demon is I have four web servers and one of them slightly different from all the other. Yep. Yep. And that's really hard to detect. DSC is good at finding that. That's right. Hmm. Yeah. So that that, that kind of leads into right once once we talk about the generals around how to build cookbooks, what resources are available, all those things. Uh, you know that was that was somewhat easy to get get your head around. But once you start building your own, then then it comes down to okay, well, we got to figure out how to build these uh, in the way that that we can use them. And and getting into Ruby and getting into all of the, the chef details and things. And, and I'll be honest, I struggled with that for probably a month or two, just trying to wrap my head around, well, how, how is it that I really need to be building these things? And then eventually found chef spec, which is, like I said before, is their unit testing framework. And, and being a developer uh, for several years and now an architect, you know, I, I put a lot of emphasis on TDD uh, in my development and with our teams here at EBSCO. And uh, we, we've seen a lot of value out of test-driven development and just generally testing with code. And so when I found ChefSpec, I said, surely this is, this is what I've been missing, right? This is going to be what, what leads me to uh, being able to develop faster, to learn Chef, to learn Ruby faster. And, and honestly, it was. Uh, you know, once I started doing that, that's what really uh, increased the velocity of learning uh, to be able to put all these pieces together and, uh, you know, get going. Right. And this is talking about testing the cookbook, not testing the app. That's right. But the actual deployment scripts. Yep. So, so for example, when you're creating a cookbook uh, and you want to create a directory on the target machine, uh, there's a, a directory uh, uh, resource that Chef provides, or you can use the, the file DSC resource. And they're, they're functionally equivalent. It's just a little bit different in the syntax and the resource that you use. But, you know, in doing that, you can write a unit test that validates your assumptions of, of how that should be working. And so Chef Spec is, is neat in that it, it doesn't actually run the Chef Cookbook against a target node or against your local machine. It has a, a sandbox uh, called the, the Solo Runner, Chef, Chef Spec Solo Runner, I hmm. think. Uh, and, and so it, it takes your cookbook and, and runs it within that sandbox and evaluates how it runs. Technically, it's not applying the cookbook anywhere, but can, it can evaluate that. And then uh, you can run uh, RSpec tests. So RSpec is a, a Ruby uh, tool for running unit tests. And so ChefSpec is built on top of RSpec. And, and you can write unit tests that validate 
what you expect to happen in your cookbook. So you can say, I expect a directory resource to, to be executed with a, a certain name. And I expect that uh, when that directory resource is called, that you pass uh, a folder of C logs. Uh, and so it'll run that cookbook inside of that chef sandbox and then evaluate that unit test and your, your assumptions there or your assertions uh, it, that all of that is happening as you would expect it to. So now we can we can start to to work in this test driven environment where we write the R spec or chef spec test first and see that that test fails, go implement that change in the chef cookbook and then rerun our test to see that it, it passes. So you're getting that re- red, uh, red green process going in that quick feedback loop. Have you ever had to completely change the the platform that you're running on? Let's say you have some stuff in um, Amazon and then you've got, uh, you know, you want to move a couple of services over to Azure and, you know, you're now tweaking your, your cookbooks. Is it that big a deal to do that kind of thing or is that more of a fundamental change? I guess, I mean, it's, I guess if you're using containers, it wouldn't be that big a deal. Huh? Well, I mean, I, I guess um, I, it depends on where you're coming from, where you're going to, but in, in general, it shouldn't be that big a deal. I mean, if you're going to Linux from Linux to Windows, yeah, it's a sure, bigger deal. Sure. But if you're you're updating Windows versions, server versions, for example, uh, it may not be that bad. You know, we've got a mix of, of uh, 2008 R2, 2012, and I've done some testing with 2016 and Nano, and you know, most of the changes are just the the availability of different tools on those different platforms. Right, for, sure. So, for example, 2008 R2 didn't come with PowerShell 5, uh, but you could upgrade it to PowerShell 5. So, in that case, you have to have some, some conditional code in your cookbook. If you want to run that cookbook on both 2008 R2 and 2012, you have to have some conditional code to install PowerShell 5 if it's not already installed, for example. Um, another yeah. example, if, if you're targeting uh, server 2016, it has new PowerShell commandlets. The git smb share uh, commandlet, for example, is available in 2016. And um, you can use it there, but if you're trying to do the same thing and create a, a file share in 2008 R2, you've got to use something else. Yeah. So it's not too bad, but you just got to work out those things. And, and what's what's fun is... Once you've you've built your unit testing, then you can move more to integration tests. Yeah, uh, and and where you're actually applying that cookbook to a target node, and so that's what uh, Kitchen is used for. Yeah, uh, that's the the test execution framework that right. Chef provides. Right. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? It uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah, time to cook up a cold koi soup with a slice of fresh otter. You're and a little Kieran Terrier on the side. <laughs> just watching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little more intense than that. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. I, you know, I didn't want to go down the, the typical route, but I couldn't help it. I mean, yeah. there's so many puns that you can... Uh, never mind. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial 
at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Maximo Guerrero. Congratulations, Maximo. Yes. Call clap for you, sir. Congratulations, Maximo. And uh, he just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But have to sign up to win and we also like to ask our guests rob you've done this before but if you've had five thousand dollars to spend on technology what do you think you'd buy so i think i'm about ready for a uh laptop upgrade so i've, ah, I've been using nope. a surface pro 3 for a while and uh the eight gig of ram on this thing is is starting to hurt a little bit uh so i'm 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 probably going to be looking for a new one here in the next uh, couple of months uh, but that's probably what i'd look at i'm looking the, the the little 32 gig XPS from Dell uh, looks really attractive, but honestly, the I think the Surface Book you can get with 32 as well, and then you get all the cool pin functionality and everything. So I, I think I'm I think I might go with a Surface Book. Yeah, I don't know if there's a 32 gig version of the uh, uh, of the Surface Book. I think it only goes up to 16. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, maybe it's the XPS then. Yeah, I mean, it, I know they got a choice between eight and 16. I have not seen a 32. Hmm. And it's got the new performance base, which is awesome. You can get a terabyte of storage on it. But, yeah, I don't know if there is a 32-gigabyte version of the Surface Book. I love my Surface Book. Yeah. But I just haven't needed 32 gigs anymore, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. Not running that much Hyper-V. Sure. Yeah, that's right. You and Brian Randall are the Hyper-V kings for a while. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> that's also when we, we, you know, brought laptops that could heat a, a, a small building. Or shut down the power grid in Los Angeles for an yeah. afternoon. Not that that would ever happen, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> when would that ever happen? <laughs> Power goes out in a meeting. Everybody looks at Richard. He goes, what? What? I just plugged in. What? I just got here. <laughs> yeah. Happens. I, st- yep. I still got that old machine. I've kept it. It's sort of a prize, right? It's also got this 15-inch 1080p screen. It's awesome. But, uh, daughter hasn't made a flower bed planter out of it. Who would do that? Nobody does that. <laughs> By the way, your laptop is still in that flower bed. Yeah. I donated an old laptop <laughs> it was, to the art. It's art. To the it's art, art now. Yeah. It's oh, art nice. growing moss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so with Kitchen, you need all that RAM, right? Because because it's that integration uh, testing framework, uh, the whole idea is it's spinning up VMs for you to apply your cookbooks to. And if Interesting. you- if you want to, you know, test your cookbook against different versions of Windows, you can have it create a 2008 R2, a 2012, 2016, and even a Nano VM, and then apply your cookbook to it, and yeah. then it runs your integration tests. Yeah, cool. So is this is Kitchen.ci, or is this somebody else using? No, this nope, is Kitchen. That's it. Yep. That's the one. So this is a whole test space for your infrastructure. I just love this idea that. You know, generally speaking, when you talk about testing a deployment, I, I do that by running it and seeing if we deployed the app successfully. Like, that's usually a pretty good sign. Right. Yeah, this is all up front doing it in a test environment, even, wait, even before you do it to real nodes, just run it on right. a VM to see if it's working, as you would expect. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, they've got tons of different drivers out there. I think the default one is VirtualBox. 
because it's cross-platform, uh, right. but they have uh, a driver for Azure, for EC2. Uh, they've got one for Hyper-V. That's the one that I use. And, and all mm-hmm. kind of, they've got one for VMware, I think. So there's all kinds of uh, uh, options out there. Vagrant is, is another uh, popular one as well. So mm-hmm. you can use all yeah. the different Vagrant boxes that are out there. So super yeah. helpful. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it manages and, and automates all of the setup for that. Uh, and so there's a couple of steps to that whole kitchen process, right? Uh, it starts with the create where it's creating that VM. Uh, it uses the driver that you specify. You have to give it an image and, and tell it how much CPU and memory you want to use, obviously. Uh, and, and once the create's done, then it does what it calls the converge, where it actually applies your cookbook to, to that VM or multiple VMs. Uh, and so part of that is it, you know, it has to roll through all the different res- resources that are in your cookbook. And so depending on what OS you're testing against, that, that may run differently. So, for example, in 2008 R2, I was talking about the PowerShell 5 install. That install requires a reboot as well. And so uh, in today with Chef DK 1.2 uh, and, and the version of Kitchen that comes with that, you actually have to run Converge twice. Once to install PowerShell 5 that sets up all your dependencies. And then after that, you can use your DSC resources and all of that, and it'll finish the converge. Hmm. One of the features though, in, in Chef DK 1.3 and the version of kitchen that comes with that is it uses that reboot uh, logic that uh, Murawski created. And uh, so it just handles it and you only need a single converge. So that's really nice. A lot of people have, I think, struggled with that for a while, hmm. but uh, so that's the converge. That's where it applies uh, the cookbook to the VM. And then finally, you can verify that with your integration test. So either inspect or pester or server spec. And so there it's actually connecting to that, that VM. It's, it's sending over those tests and then running those tests to verify that the cookbook created the configuration uh, like you expected. Nice. Yeah. So you can really walk through all these different tests. Uh, you mentioned pester back uh, before the break there briefly. This is the testing infrastructure for PowerShell too? Yep. Yep. So, you know, just like you have different drivers that you can use to create the VMs in Kitchen, they have different uh, verifiers, I think is what they call them, uh, for running different types of tests within Kitchen. Uh, And so it supports inspect and pester and server spec. There's probably others, but those are the main ones I think that you most often see. And so, uh, you know, for me as a, uh, you know, Microsoft developer, um, you know, pester was the obvious choice. I already know a little bit of PowerShell. Uh, instead of writing more Ruby code, I can defer and, and actually use uh, PowerShell tests for that. So it's a really, really nice option, especially for for those more familiar with the Microsoft uh, development shop. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, it's just PowerShell has a better way to control a lot of products, like certainly setting up things like IIS and, and uh, SharePoint stuff. Like it's the best way to configure that sort of stuff. Yep. Uh, I mean, think out of the box, I mean, every, all the, the big uh, products coming out of Microsoft, I think they have to have a PowerShell API now to set Pretty all those much, things yeah. up. So, uh, yeah, then that's that goes back to, you know, Windows being, you know, somewhat of a, a second class citizen getting better. Uh, you know, Chef just doesn't have resources that handle all those kinds of things. So it's really, really convenient to be able to, to use PowerShell for that. You know, you can run the, the DSC resources, but you can just send it. Uh, PowerShell script as well. If there's not a DSC resource, you can create your own DSC resource or just have uh, code uh, PowerShell scripting that you just pass to it and, and do it that way too. And the challenge I've seen with using DSC is 
What you can't do with DSC is point it at an existing server and say, give me a script for that. You do have to build up the DSC script from scratch. Uh, that has been true. I saw there is a, uh, a open source project, I think, uh, that uh, is doing exactly what you're talking about, where you point it at a server and it creates a DSC script for you. I have not wow. played with that, but I've seen that on Twitter and I, I forget the name of it. We'll have to go back and find it and put it in the notes. But uh, it looks like it's going to be a really uh, helpful tool for just that scenario. Yeah, well, it, it, and I, it's challenging because it's like, well, what, what all is important, right? Like actually figuring out what are the elements of this machine that are actually important? Do you really understand all of the settings in it? Because it, it, this is all about being able to to have a text file, essentially, that defines every aspect of your uh, your system. No, no yep. secrets, right? This is there's used to be uh, this was always a problem, especially with stuff like IIS, where there's all these secret settings that people just don't know about. So you don't know what was important. Yep. Mm. And that, you know, honestly, it's going to it's gonna have to evolve over time, right? The cookbooks that you create, you're going to get it wrong the first time. But over time, you'll find, okay, well, I missed, to, I missed this configuration specifically. I need to go back and add that to my cookbook. Having that testing infrastructure in place and existing tests in place allows you to apply new configuration changes to the cookbook and then you run your test suite to make sure you haven't regressed as far as, you know, old functionality that you assume would continue to work. Cool. Hey, I did find a DSC generator project on GitHub, although specifically focused on IIS. So basically you point it at a server and it goes through and reads all of the settings in IIS and generates the DSC script for you. Yeah, there, I think there's a, there's an, another one that has a, a a neat little name, you know, uh, with fewer vowels. Uh, but you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it uh, it's more generic. I think you just point it at a node, and it it looks for anything that it might know how to create a configuration around and scripts it out. I, I've I've I saw it. Somebody was talking about it at the PowerShell summit, and I just I can't remember the name of it. But definitely, it's out there, and I'll find it so we can add it in the yeah. notes because mm-hmm. uh, it looked like a really neat project. Yeah, it's, it's just an interesting idea, and and. I don't know if it's good or bad, right? Because I do think you really, in one sense, it's like it's cool to say, here's all the settings we believe in your server. The question is, which ones are important? But yeah, man, if you can use that to generate the initial DSC script and then just delete the things you don't need and keep the stuff you do, and then it's not going to get everything, but you can at least augment it from there and it's done maybe a bulk of the work, which would be nice. I'd rather it did get everything and it's too much than just so that you can at least narrow down. The bigger concern here is when you're trying to build stuff from scratch is what did you forget? Yeah, sure. You know, when and it's not always easy to detect those things. So it is a challenge to try and get all this right. But this, you know, the problem in in the IT world is we've, especially in the in the Windows Server world, we've set all this stuff up using mouse and keyboard and you know clicking on buttons, and it's not repeatable. We just don't know where a lot of that stuff is. That's why we did this push to PowerShell in the first place. So we literally have the code that generates the infrastructure. Yep. Uh, there's so many legacy machines running around out there where we just don't know what the magic settings are in them. Yeah. So I wanted to mention, too, uh, you know, using all this with Nano. So, you know, the promise of Nano was, hey, we're going to make a a much smaller Windows server install uh, so that you can do more automation, more DevOps and it not be so, so painful. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, initially I started with a 2008 R2 uh, image in Hyper-V and that thing was about 20 gigs in size. And uh, if you kind of look at the the workflow of that test-driven development workflow, it would take about 10 minutes total to create, converge, and verify uh, the full uh, the full array in, in Kitchen there. 
And but if you you know once you've done the converge initially, if you're really doing TDD, you do that initial converge, uh, and uh, you can really go through verify to make sure it's all working. But then you can incrementally add things to the cookbook. Uh, to the test first and then to the cookbook so that we're doing TDD. And then you have a little feedback loop there that, that's much smaller. So it's still, once you've done that initial converge, it's only about 60 to 90 seconds to add, you know, a new test, run the test, and then uh, add the change to the cookbook and then verify that, that that's passing. So, nice. you know, much better than doing all of that manually. 69, 60 to 90 seconds is pretty good. But as a test, I wanted to see what it would it take for nano. So the nano image was only about 600 megabytes, uh, and it took it from 10 minutes to only about five minutes to run through the whole process. And then talking about that test-driven development feedback loop, it goes to about 30 to 40 seconds. So definitely some benefits there, especially you know for the demos that I did at uh, the PowerShell Summit. Yeah, I don't know if I could have done it with you know 2008 R2. It would have been just too slow. Uh, so definitely something to watch, uh, to keep w- uh, watching and keep an eye on as we move forward. And they continue to add more features to Nano. Really, really neat technology. I uh, hope they continue to invest there. Is it, I mean, there's a few whammies you got to know about Nano. I mean, for starters, like you cannot RTP into that machine. There is no local login. There is oh, no yeah. GUI. It's 64-bit only, which I think is one of the reasons it's so much faster. Is there's simply no thunking layer anymore. It is all 64-bit all the time. That's right. And and yeah. you can only configure it with DSC. It doesn't have group policy. Like, it doesn't have it. A whole lot of stuff is just not there. Hmm. Yep. PowerShell is, is the interface that you use. Yeah, you have to use sessions and log in. So, that you know, that was uh, – honestly, that may have been the first time I used PS Session, but – uh, you know, it's it's really not that bad. I, I came into it as a neophyte, never never really done it before, and so uh, it, it wasn't that bad to set up. You got to create a, a nano image and and get going there. But I've got some blog posts that I've written on how to do that, and it's it's really not that bad. Definitely encourage people to try it out. What kind of app are you building that runs on nano server? No, nothing yet. It's all just testing uh, purposes. Right. You know, it, over the next three months, we've got some. Uh, some work that we're going to be doing to to look at migrating over to .NET Core. Uh, and I want to run those .NET Core apps on Docker and in .NET Core, um, or on Nano, rather. Uh, and so, you know, that's it's this was all in preparation for that to see if I could get it working. But, uh, you know, they have some really specific goals for Nano. I sure. think, you know, web server, file server, um, uh, I think being able to run Hyper-V, uh, I think those were the big three, if I remember correctly. And so, outside of that, you're you're somewhat uh, in, in the wild, wild west as far as what works, what doesn't. But obviously, I, I think they'll continue to uh, invest there and, and add more features over time. But that's perfect if we're doing web apps. You know, it's it's kind of a perfect marriage there to to try that out. Yeah, I mean, and as a web server, it doesn't run IIS. You need to install Kestrel on it. This is meant for core. It's not meant right. for re- or, you know traditional. Uh, .NET framework. This is you're doing core development, and you want it stinky fast. But you remember Carl? When we did that show with Scott Hunter, who was saying we're gonna we're gonna beat records, right? Absolutely. Right? He was using Nano for that. Yeah, and they did it. Yeah, it's about to say they did do it. Yeah, that that's what it's about. It, but it's you if you're gonna go down this path, it's all new stuff. And it, this is a very IT oriented thing. You guys wouldn't necessarily know about this, but the Nano server as it's currently available in Server 2016. Is is called a current branch for business model or CBB. What this basically says is when you're running this and it's connected to the internet, it will auto update itself two or three times a year. 
And there's wow. no really no option to turn that off except blocking it from the internet. Hmm. Oh, wow. Now, and you know, for a dev machine, that's not a big deal. But for an ops machine, most ops environments and most production environments, you don't change anything on my server unless I give you permission. And, right. and Microsoft with, with server 2016, for example, has the CBB option, which is considered the normal option. And then you have what's called the long-term servicing branch or LTSB option. And the long-term servicing branch is only like one update a year and you control when it's applied. And, but you know, to be, to be under license, like to still get tech support, you can only be one rev behind, but it's only annual. So it's not that big a deal. But Nano is CBB only, at least for now. There's been enough outcry that it wouldn't surprise you that the next version does have an LTSB option. But if you're listening to this as a dev and you're going to go pitch this to ops, like you're going to go, hey, I want to use Nano server. This may be the whammy, right? Like mm-hmm. this is the thing where the ops guy will go, hey, this is not good. And odds are he's not going to find that right off the bat and he'll be angry with you too. So you (laughs) need to know this. Don't blindside operations people. They don't like stuff being broken abruptly. And it's, it's kind of a big deal. It leaves nano server in a state that I think you pretty much described Rob, which is this is experimental. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm happy putting this into production just yet. Now, admittedly, I am an old IT guy who's much more cautious about updates and things. There may be groups of folks that are more comfortable with this, but I'm not one of them. And so it's been a concern of mine is like, when is nano server going to grow up? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you say before you didn't think IS ran on nano? Mm-mm. IS does. doesn't run on nano. You run it Kestrel does. on nano. Well, so they've, uh, the reason I, I, part of one of my cookbooks is to create an IS site using the create, uh, create IS site commandlet. In PowerShell. Oh, interesting. They've got, a, they've got a new PowerShell module. That you can't use the old web administration one because they've, they've changed it. Uh, but there's a new IS administration module. The commandlets are a little bit different. Uh, but there's, I, I'm sure it doesn't have all of the IIS functionality. But, uh, you know, it's got basic, uh, you know, run an ASP.NET website, all those things in the box. Oh, cool. Yeah, you, I'm, you've got to turn on the feature, obviously, when you create yep. uh, the nano image, but uh, that that is absolutely there. So, that definitely- so they made a subset of IIS you can run on nano, sir. Right. Yep. That's cool. But I mean, huh. I think if you're targeting that that web platform uh, uh, on the server, I, I think it at least for us, we're going to start playing with it and see what we can get uh, out of it. Sure. And, it, and I guess the question is, you know, do you want it? Like, or should you just go with 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 Kestra with the the core edition? But, oh yeah. Uh, if the, you know if IIS is what you want to use, you're just going to have to use PowerShell management for it, right? Because there's no graphical stuff on there. But bit by bit, you know, na- like I said, Nano is still in early days, and they're still figuring out everything that's going to run on it and how they're going to run it. Oh yeah. But they sub gigabyte footprint for Windows. Hmm. What world is this? Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's it's funny. It takes uh, the 2008 R2 image, the Hyper-V Create takes about three minutes, and yeah. it's like 35 seconds with Nano. So it's, wow, it's it makes a huge difference. A lot, and a lot of it too is all the security differences too, because they don't have so many packages and features within Windows. I think it's uh, uh, not severely, but uh, it cuts down on all the different service issues that could apply to Nano because it just doesn't have as many bits. Yeah. Well, and that's the whole thing, right? We, we've built up this, for better or worse, let's call it cruft. Yeah. Of to, because Microsoft has always been big about backward compatibility, we have all these things that have followed us version to version to version, just in case you might be using them. 
And nano is this opportunity to shake a lot of that off. Hey, if you're not 64 bit, don't come here. Yeah. Right. Like this, yep. that mindset of we're ready. This is for new things. That's right. With, and then if you go back, I did a blog post about, you know, the, the transition from web administration module to IIS. And there's a post uh, in the release notes where they say, Hey, you know, basically, we're breaking things already, and uh, there is no backwards compatibility for Nano, or at least not broadly. So this is the time. If we're going to make the the IS administration module better, this is the time to do it. And so we're we're going to take this opportunity. We we understand it's going to be painful, but now is the time to do it. And they said, you know, web administration has always been kind of painful to use, and they haven't been able to go back and invest it and, and refactor it the way they really wanted to to make it. Uh, work well with PowerShell and, and everything you'd want to use it for. And so this was their opportunity to make it better. And so they did. Yeah. Mm. It's, a, it's a chance to make a break and say, hey, if you don't want this, stick with the full version. Yep. But if you're, if you're ready to go lighter and, and getting some of this sp- speed benefit and, and lightness benefit and, and really reduced attack surface, you know, it's like we have the Swiss army knife with all the blades out and you don't need them all. <laughs> Right. So why not just have the pieces you need and, and install only the stuff you need? It's exciting, but it uh, it is st- I still feel like it's early days. Oh yeah, I definitely think it is. It's just you're like you said, it's really exciting to see where they're going and how different the Microsoft today is from five years ago, even two years ago. Honestly, sure. Well, I I like the idea of doing a Windows based app that's tight. I'm only running bits I use, nothing mm-hmm. else. There's just nothing left on, nothing left behind, no attack surface necessary, right? Like everything that's there is what's needed. And that's just not been the Windows way since the beginning of Windows. Right. Yeah. So I'm, I'm obviously listening intently, but, um, you know, it's not something that I personally have a lot of experience with, but it just sort of, seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that it's a little bit of a different approach than using, say, Docker containers, which are sort of pre-configured and you just sort of put them up and they run. Yep. Are these really two different ways to approach the same thing? Yeah. So, I've had a lot of the same questions and honestly, I haven't answered it yet. Um, But I mean, I think just like, you know, virtualization was a game changer for for operations. I think Docker is probably at the same level. Mm. Uh, And so, it's going to take some time to figure that out. I honestly, I haven't even looked to see what Chef says about it. Uh, But I'm I'm sure that's something that they're looking at. But I I agree with you. Uh, If if you're creating Docker uh, images, and container images, you know, that seems to uh, negate some of the uh, or replace some of the functionality that you would get out of uh, Chef and and even DSC. But at the end of the day, you know, you can't run containers yet for everything. So you're going to even if you're maybe you're using it Chef to configure your Docker host. Right. 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 So you're always going to have some use for it. And we're continuing to use it. It's going to be a while before we, we move everything to containers. So, uh, you know, it's got some value for us for the next few years. So we'll use it where it makes sense. And then uh, definitely want to look at containers and Docker as well. And if it doesn't make sense there, uh, we'll we'll use whatever else is there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm also thinking in terms of, you know, we're also doing shows around this whole serverless concept in the cloud as well. And right. all of a sudden you're like, maybe we'll never all be in containers. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. There's going to be there's going to be a couple of VMs in our life. And there might be a bare metal machine in our life. There might be some Azure functions out there. And there's mm-hmm. going to be some container stuff. And, and I want a, a tool that isn't afraid of anything. Yeah. Yeah, agreed, Richard. Uh, I I think the whole uh serverless thing is very very exciting, but it does sort of rub against that persona who wants ultimate fine-grained control over every bit. 
right. in the in the container, you know, as uh, the kind of people that we've interviewed about Docker have been that, you know, they 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 like to they like to be able to have the source code to everything that's running in that container and be able to swap things out and fix things and update things and tweak exactly where they need to. And the answer, it'll just scale is not acceptable to them. Right, right. right. It's like, no, no, I'll, I'll decide when you scale. The problem with that approach is that there are fewer of those, you know, geniuses out there that can make all that stuff work. Well, and I, and I don't know how much control we need. It's the same way we don't make our own electricity anymore, right? Like, right. It's, maybe it's good enough yep. and we can focus on, on other things to provide value. Yeah, I'm with you. Exciting times, man. Fascinating stuff. Thanks a lot, Rob, for uh, being here for this hour. Yeah, no, great to be here. You know, I just definitely want to encourage everybody to, to give it a try. It's it's not the easiest thing to do, but it's definitely well worth it, and you'll learn a lot and probably get a lot of value out of it. So stick with it, you know, especially those of you that are, are more in the C-sharp VB space and maybe haven't touched your hand at, at scripting yet. It's it's a different way of doing things, but you'll, you'll learn something uh, from it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thanks again, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Transmit a band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a